Hello, hello. I want to make sure everyone out there is aware of Relathan Educate's first annual classroom management workshop. We have been working on some fantastic and exciting and wonderful things to present to you guys. And now that I say those words, I hear it too. I hear the teacher in me coming out and all of my descriptive adjectives that I've for 15 years been writing at the tops of papers and encouraging little things to tell my students about their work. So I'm just gonna embrace it. Come to Relate and Educate's first annual fantastic, awesome, exciting, wonderful, amazing, super cool, radical, A-plus classroom management workshop. Okay, but it really is going to be all of those things. So we're going to be hosting this workshop in September. We're going to host it in Tulsa, September 21st. And then the very next week, same workshop, different location. We're going to be in Oklahoma City, September 28th. So in Tulsa, we're going to be meeting again September 21st at Tulsa Community College. They have a really cool new event space that we're going to be in, which I'm very excited to get to be presenting and doing all that stuff there. And then the very next week, in Oklahoma City, well, I guess Edmond, technically, it's going to be at UCO, the University of Central Oklahoma, on September 28th. So again, same workshop, just different dates, different location. This classroom management workshop is, you can earn up to five CE hours, cha-ching, and it's going to be wonderful. Um, it's held in September, so think about this. School starts in August, and here in Oklahoma, you're going to have a month with your new students. You have a new group of kids, new groups of, you know, wonderful combinations, and also you'll probably have some new issues that you're identifying a month into school. And what a better time to come and talk about those issues that you've identified in your classroom then to come to our classroom management workshop in September because that's exactly what we're going to be talking about. We're going to be talking about the importance of building relationships, having rigor and being relevant. We're going to learn some de-escalation techniques, effectively communicate with your parents and caregivers, and also how to have fun with teaching without losing control of your classroom, which isn't that what we all want. We want to create these, this fun environment, this wonderful, engaging you know, these wonderful engaging learning experiences for our students and we want them to be fun, but we also want learning to be happening. So there has to be some classroom management happening there and we will help you with that. We have some wonderful instructors, Rick Holmes, Katie Kinder, Aaron Patton, myself, and Joe Lane. Now Rick Holmes is the founder of Relate and Educate. Rick Holmes taught um, 20 years in the high school area and also was a coach. Katie Kinder is a 16 year middle school teacher. She is a speaker, she's an author, and she is a teacher coach. She coaches the teachers in her school. Me, Erin Patton, I am a 15 year elementary teacher. Now I'm doing the whole Relate and Educate thing. And then Joe Lane. Joe is the founder of the Teaching and Leading Initiative of Oklahoma, TLI. We're partnering with TLI to bring this classroom management workshop to you guys. And so you guys are so fortunate to get to have Joe as one of your presenters. I've been lucky enough to get to see Joe in the classroom working with the teachers that she mentors and coaches and she is wonderful she's fantastic so I'm so excited for you guys to get to know her for this um, workshop we're going to be presenting and then we're also throughout the day going to be breaking out into different breakout sessions depending on you know what area you teach so we're going to have elementary middle high school and special ed breakout sessions so that we can talk about how to implement and apply all of these wonderful strategies into our classroom it's going to be wonderful. So everyone, go to RelateThenEducate.com, get on our website, look for information about the Classroom Management Workshop, and register today. We cannot wait to see you in September. Hello, hello, and welcome to the Relate and Educate podcast. It's Erin Patton here. I'm excited to be talking to you guys on this incredibly hot day, like the hottest day of the year and it's only gonna get hotter from here baby um are y'all enjoying this heat as much as I am <laughs> no I actually I love seasons I love living in Oklahoma a place where I get to experience four distinct seasons I just like many people wish summer wasn't so dang hot but you know it's what it is and I'm enjoying it making the most out of it um my husband and I have been going to the pool several days like we'll take a long lunch or something and go for like an hour and a half and so we actually 
We used to live in kind of cool, trendy, fun, midtown Tulsa area, really close to downtown, loved it. And then a couple years ago, we moved out to the Burbs, out in Broken Arrow, Oklahoma, and love living out here. But we really love pools, and we don't have a pool or anything, but Broken Arrow does. Broken Arrow has several different public pools that we have been utilizing, and it's been so much fun. There are these big, huge pools, and... You know, I don't mind that there's kids running around. My husband and I don't have children, so we are like the only adults there, childless. But, you know, whatever. And I love the kids running around and playing and having fun. And I miss kids so badly being out of the classroom. So I have fun, you know, just getting to watch all the kids having fun. My husband would rather be in an adult-only pool or something, I think, having drinks. But, hey, going to a public pool... Seeing kids just, you know, being out in the sun, staying cool. Can't really beat that, right? Okay, anyway, hope you guys have been, you know, staying safe out there. Um, the topic today of today's top podcast is research and data analysis in the classroom. I don't want you to run away because while those words may have once scared me. And while those words may indeed have scared you when you just heard them, I really think that you're going to love how Dr. Matthew Courtney, our guest today, how he breaks this down and kind of like why and how we use data or we use research and data analysis in our classrooms. It's really good, very, you know, practical things that he has to say. So I hope you guys will really enjoy this. I know you will. So who is this Dr. Matthew Courtney that you've been hearing about? Let me tell you, he's an educator, a researcher, researcher, policymaker, and an author. And he talks about all of those things, all of his different roles in our podcast. So you guys will get to hear about that. Um, so basically, he specializes in using data and research to support schools and teachers as they work to improve teaching and learning. And his motto or tagline that is, you know, all over his social media and all over everything is, I help schools help kids. And that's exactly what he does. Um, <clears throat> he is really, really interesting. This was really great. Like, I was not necessarily thinking that a podcast over research and data analysis in the classroom was going to be one of my favorite episodes, but it has been. I really enjoyed recording this episode with him. In fact, after we were finished recording, Rick and I sat there for a while just like, that was fun. That was a really good one. And we just like kind of kept the conversation going about what we were talking about while we were recording. So it just, I really think you guys are going to like it. Um, <clears throat> so I will turn it over to our episode with Dr. Matthew Courtney over research and data analysis in the classroom. to double our efforts so we record yeah. on one and the other <laughs> yes i understand we've yeah how's the conference going I, i've been to the gaylord hotel it's very nice um yeah. and so so what what was the conference name again it's called the making schools work conference it's okay. put on by the southern regional education board um, so it's a really good conference. There's over 500 breakout sessions happening wow. this week, um, all on school improvement related topics. So it's it's a fun one. Excellent. Cool. And and I'm I'm assuming you're speaking. I am. I've got two two breakout sessions. One on exploratory data analysis, mm -hmm. and one on um, designing systems for effective research use. So thinking through how a school can use research a little more intentionally and and support it with systems. Excellent. That's cool. I definitely am going to want to ask that and talk about that once we get this party started. <laughs> sure, sure. <laughs> All right. So we we all ready? We are. Let me confirm that. Oh. Make sure we're good we're to recording. go. Yep. We're good. Okay. All right. Hello, hello, and welcome to the Relate and Educate podcast. Aaron and Rick are here today. Hey, Rick. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. And we are talking with Dr. Matthew Courtney. Hello, Matthew. 
Hello, good morning. Hello, and we just talked about this, but where are you talking, or from where are you talking to us? <laughs> yeah, I'm at the Gaylord Texan Hotel today, um, just outside of Dallas, Texas, uh -huh. at the Southern Regional Education Board's Making Schools Work Conference. Wonderful, and where are you from? I'm from Frankfort, Kentucky. Okay, so a Kentuckian in, in Texas. I love <laughs> That's it. That's right. <laughs> we have a lot in common. <laughs> That's true. Well, wonderful. So, okay, how long have you been in education and also kind of what got you there? Sure, yeah. So I've been in education for uh, about 13 years. Okay. And um, actually, I didn't set out to be an educator. I went to school, my undergraduate degree is in music, um, and I had plans of being a musicologist. And um, toward the end of my time in my undergraduate program, I was applying to grad schools, and it just wasn't feeling right. And my advisor said, well, why don't we put you on an education track, mm. let you do some student teaching, and then you can reassess. And I just fell in love. I, I fell in love, love with the profession it. and with the kids. and through those experiences in student teaching and what we call methods courses, where we go and just sort of visit and spend time in classrooms, I really realized how much power education has to shape mm -hmm. the life of a child and, and the future of a community. And so I was hooked and I've been in it ever since. I love it. Okay, I want to go back. What's musicology? I was getting ready to ask the same thing. <laughs> <laughs> That's a great question. Yeah, musicology is uh, like a deep study into the history of music, okay. how music became the way that it is, how um, popular music originated, and sort of how classical music became romantic music, became jazz music, oh. and how it's all interconnected, interspersed. Right. Now, I would assume that you would then translate that that knowledge into teaching. That, that would be the natural flow of things, right? Yeah, that's right. When I was a teacher, I taught music at the mm -hmm. elementary level. Mm -hmm. Um, and I actually used my college textbooks as my curriculum. No way. Um, we taught music history and music theory. My kids wrote songs and pieces on the piano. Um, wow. And my favorite activity, I taught a nine-week unit only to fifth graders. It was their sort of special end of elementary school unit all about the history of popular music in America. And we started with the Pilgrims and went all the oh. way through jazz music, rock and roll, and into hip hop and music today. And they were able to apply all of that knowledge from five years of, of classes with me and other grade levels uh, to be able to analyze that music and talk about that music. So it was really fun. I love that wow. so much. Like I taught history and I liked to incorporate um, the development of, say, music, uh, mm -hmm. classical music, and the differences, uh, you know, between, say, Bach and Mozart and the, things like that. Yeah. And then, you know, art as well, uh, you know, during the Renaissance. And mm -hmm. I always thought it was really interesting. And I, I saw the kids' interest perk up whenever they could kind of root something that they kind of knew about, like, say, classical music. But where was it? When was it? What was going on? Why did they build their music the way that they did? Uh, same with art. There's always a story behind art uh, as far as like sculpture and things like that. Yeah. And I think that context, historical context of art itself is extraordinarily interesting. Yeah, I think so too. And it really helps the students to think about really the power of the arts in our society to shape the way that we think and approach things. Um, my students were able to make really interesting connections. We used to write um, protest songs. We would talk about the role of music through history and thinking through social movements and and um, reflecting society at the time. So that was always a really fun activity because wow. they would pick an issue that they cared about and then they would write a song um, using all kinds of alliteration and different kinds of illustrative techniques to sort of express themselves and, and their feelings on a social movement. Um, through music. It was always a really fun activity. What a, what a dynamic uh, lesson plan that is. Seriously, that's what <laughs> I was thinking. And that's not even what we're here to talk about. <laughs> what a bonus. I love it. That's great. Okay, so how did you get... So for our audience, Dr. Matthew Courtney is an educator, researcher, policymaker, author. So how did you get from studying musicology, teaching elementary music, to where you are now? A great question. Um, so I loved teaching elementary music and really uh -huh. wasn't ready to quit. How long did you um, and, teach and leave elementary? The I only taught for four years okay. um, in that in my elementary work. And I really wasn't ready, but we had some situations going on where um, schools were consolidating. Mm. 
they were eliminating music positions and I, and I had an opportunity to give up my position to save another position and then really advocate for my kids. And so I transitioned from the classroom into the nonprofit sector um, where I was for several years working on um, elements of teacher quality and school improvement. We did a lot of professional development. Um, we did over a thousand hours of professional development a year through that nonprofit work, helping teachers to really um, stand on their own. The whole idea was teachers teaching other teachers. Mm. Um, and helping them to stand on their own and own their profession. And through that, I learned a lot about school improvement. I learned a lot about policy work and said, you know, I think I want to make the move now into more policy roles um, where I could really um, influence education system. Um, and, and specifically, my work focuses on how we use data and research to influence school improvement um, and to make schooling better for all kids at all levels. Wow. Love it. Very cool. Okay, so I have to admit, and I saw on your website that you talked to, uh, what did you refer to it as, as data-hesitant teachers. <laughs> yeah. And I have to admit, I taught elementary for 15 years, and it wasn't that I was hesitant, like I was refusing it, but I just, I was ignorant. Like, I just didn't know, and so I felt uncomfortable with it, mm-hmm. and I when I taught fifth grade, I was paired up. Um, one of the other fifth grade teachers was like data researcher extraordinaire. And so I kind of like, she did it and then she imparted her wisdom onto me and that's what I took. And so I, I am definitely a data hesitant teacher. So I want to hear more about that. What do you say to people like me that just don't know? I I would like to to second that. (laughs) (laughs) And we don't know what we don't know. Yeah, I taught history for 20 years, and and it was something that uh, people talked about, but I didn't know anything about, to be honest. Yeah, well, I will third that, because that was me too (laughs) as a teacher. I was very much a data-hesitant teacher. I like to say that I spent my whole teaching career bluffing my way through data (laughs) meetings and and PLCs and going, oh, yeah, that sounds really interesting. Let's act on that. Yes, <laughs> yes, that is hitting I think me so close. A lot of teachers are in that position because we just don't really train teachers very deeply on how to really use mm. data in a methodical way. And so um, I work with a lot of data hesitant educators. It's my favorite group of people because, like I said, that's who I was. Um, But I learned um, through some doctoral education and through a bunch of self-study after that, um, that really data has a lot of power. Um, So think for a minute about just the volume of data that you collect as an educator. I mean, hundreds and hundreds of data points every single day and we don't do anything with that. So that's a lot of work and a lot of effort that you're you're going through to collect all of this data and then it just goes and sits on an Excel spreadsheet or uh-huh. in a student information system and then it's gone. So why are we using all of that effort? We've got all this information that we're just not tapping into. Um, and I, a few years ago, I had an opportunity to kind of look behind the scenes at the way industry is using data and big businesses. Mm. Um, A great example is Google. If you've never um, searched your Google profile, most people don't know, but Google has an ad profile all about you, where they are taking all of your little data points that you feed into it every day through, of course, Google searches, but through all your social media, through your Gmail account, through your YouTube watching. And they have a scarily accurate profile of who you are. They know if you're married or not. They know your gender. They know what languages you speak, what profession you're in. And I just remember sitting back and thinking, wow, we have that much information on our kids, Mm. but we don't know that much about them, right? Most teachers could probably sit down and create a profile at the end of the year. But what if we had enough data and we could really create that profile over the summer? before the kid walks into the building. And I already know all this stuff about them. And so um, that's where I learned about exploratory data analysis, which is the technique that I teach data hesitant educators today, um, which is this idea of, we're just gonna have a conversation with our data. We're not gonna ask questions. We're just gonna make tables and charts and see what the data has to say. Mm -hmm. And through that process, we can mine out really useful information that can inform our instruction and our systems. So I, I have some experience in this, and I know that it is it can be daunting to create the the infrastructure to allow for that data to be readable, right? So you go from yeah. a bunch of numbers, mm-hmm. and then you if you are able to construct the the spreadsheet and things like that, then you can distill some information, maybe 
you know, two or three things that are like uh, overt, like this, this needs to be fixed. So how do you get past that hurdle of being able to take someone that is swamped already mm-hmm. to be able to facilitate them building out this spreadsheet that can be very valuable. It's just, mm-hmm. you know, there's some work involved and learning, learning curve and all that stuff. Yeah, it certainly can be a learning curve. And it's one of those things I like to talk about systems and in, in education and in school improvement, we think about how do we make things routine? How do we make things systematic so that they become more automatic over time? And so one of the ways that I, I help schools do this is we think through, okay, what data are you already collecting and where is it going? Is it going in the right place? So maybe you have a uniform um, student information system, lots of states and districts have those systems where it's easily reportable. Those are great. Um, there's an organization called the Data Quality Campaign that does great work around um, student information systems and helping districts build those. But even if you're just a classroom teacher by yourself without that infrastructure, you can create your own student information system. Mm-hmm. So it's all about collecting that data neatly and putting it in the right spot we identify the data points that work for us. So I always say work with data that works for you Mm -hmm. Um, because, you know, we've got a lot of philosophical things about data, right? Um, Standardized testing, for example, we could sit here and debate pros and cons of standardized testing for the rest of our life (laughs) and not even loop loop an argument twice. Um, So if you're, if standardized testing, for example, something makes you uncomfortable, don't work with that data. Work with data that works for you Mm -hmm. um, and start there. The other thing that I do is I teach really simple strategies. I believe in spreadsheet fundamentals. What are the easiest things that we can learn? And in in my home state of Kentucky, most of the techniques that I teach are fourth and fifth grade math standards. So they're really theory light, really low hanging fruit skills that you can learn pretty quick. Um, And then, you know, if you want to learn deeper data analysis, you want to learn predictive algorithms and things like that, we can teach you that too down the road. But start with data that works for you. Start with that low-hanging fruit, those easy fundamentals, and let your skills grow over time. Don't feel like you have to dive in and be that master data analyst on day one. Mm-hmm. Right. Okay, so when you said um, you could even start um, collecting data points in the summer, specifically what kind of things are you talking about? Mm-hmm. So um, thinking about things like last year's um, attendance records, mm. last year's behavioral records, um, addresses, addresses and phone numbers. Those are huge data points that most educators don't think to look for. But how many addresses have your kids had in the last year, uh, in the last two years, last three years? Mm-hmm. Phone numbers. We know especially you can tell a lot by a family, about a family, by how often their phone number changes. Mm. Uh, phone numbers can be an indicator of socioeconomic status. It can be an indicator of um, social stability or instability. So things like that you can mine out and figure out kind of, you know, we often get like, oh, you're going to have 32 kids and they're going to be seven and eight years old. Mm-hmm. And you might get race ethnicities. You might get these kids are eligible for free lunch and these kids aren't. Mm-hmm. And that's useful. But we can go a step deeper. Those addresses, those phone numbers, those behavior records, you already have that. And so mm-hmm. you can start to think about who these kids are and kind of build a profile in your mind. Mm-hmm. Um, in my book, Exploratory Data Analysis in the Classroom, every chapter includes a vignette where we follow a teacher who is doing that exact process. That She has pulled the data over the summer and every chapter you learn a skill and then you watch her apply that skill to learn about her kids before they step in on, into the classroom on day one. Um, wow. So I think it's a really valuable uh, way to spend some time during the summer, a really great way to spend those required professional development days. <laughs> yes. Um, teachers have to be in the building without kids. That's a great activity for teachers yeah. to do. That's a great idea. Let me ask you a practical question. Yeah. So I'm assuming that, you know, you've probably had experience with, uh, you know, the virtual or uh, the, the grade books, right? So that's where mm-hmm. a lot of the information is stored for kids and things like that. Um, so I'm assuming that a teacher could export that information if they have access. And, you know, do you have any insight into how that may work? For instance, you know, what programs have you had experience with that are really easy to work with? And then does the teacher need to go to the principal to ask how how to do this or where where to gain this information? Yeah, so one thing I'll say to that is, Really, in my experience, no two student information systems are the same. And so that can't, that is certainly a challenge. Um, Teachers 
need to be trained on how to use and interact with those systems. And that's a training that they often do not get that they have to kind of fumble through mm -hmm. and figure out on their own. Um, you know, I we often hear stories of teachers who two or three days before the grading period ends, they're taking their Excel workbook or their paper grade book and kind of trying to shove everything into the system. Yeah. And um, I always think that's really unfortunate because those systems are designed to take that step away, right? Mm. You're, they're designed for you to be plugging your grades in along the way and monitoring and updating. And so if we don't train teachers how to do that, that's problem number one. Problem number two, um, you also mentioned, do they have to go to their principal and get access? A teacher should never have to go get access to the data on their kids. If you've got that system in your school, teachers should have access to that. They should know how to go in and pull that data and archive that data. What I will also say is most of those systems are really great at exporting data. Mm -hmm. And so they've got easy, sometimes pre-populated reports, um, sometimes reports that are customized that you can make on your own. They download into a spreadsheet that you can work with in Excel or in Google Sheets really easily and fluidly. Um, so they're great tools. If your school doesn't have one, you can build your own um, in an Excel spreadsheet very easily. and. Um, just kind of take thinking about like your grade book, right? That you would normally keep, but maybe there's another tab at the bottom of that spreadsheet for addresses, phone numbers and behaviors or some other elements so that you can have all of that on your own and curate your own data. The key to successful data curation, I'll also add is one row per kid. So when you're making that spreadsheet, Johnny is row A and all of Johnny's info goes in row A all the way across. Mm. We start having multiple rows for Johnny. That's when you start to get messy data, and it's really hard to work with. Yeah, I I, I want to ask you this because any teacher that's been in education very long, uh, they will experience you know whether it's direct or indirect, they will get their class list, mm -hmm. and somebody will say, hey, you got to watch out for this kid. So yeah. my curiosity is, how do you like you want to mine the data? Right, you want to get that and have a better idea of who it is that you're talking to day to day in your classroom. How do you keep teachers from pigeonholing a kid that's had eight different addresses in the last nine years, them to just say, "Oh, this kid's going to be a problem," mm -hmm. right? Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. So, how, how yeah. do you deal with that? That's a huge problem. And as the music teacher, I used to have teachers come to me saying, can you tell me about this kid? Because I taught all the kids every mm -hmm. year. Um, so, and I used to say, no, um, I'm not going to tell you about <laughs> that kid uh, because you need to experience that kid and you need to learn that kid on your own. Um, and so it is a concern, right? We do we do have a tendency to want to kind of put kids in boxes. Um, and so this is where the concept of intersectionality is really important. Um, intersectionality is a academic scientific term. Um, and I'll be honest, it's a term a little scary in education right now. It's been co-opted by some folks in the media to mean things that it doesn't mean. Mm. Um, but what it really means is we are whole individuals with complex identities and personalities. And so when we look at student data, we don't want to just look at one piece of data and say, this is who that kid is. We mm. want to look at, I like to talk about data as a constellation of, of mm. points. It's like a constellation in the sky. Um, all of those data points are unique to that kid and they connect to make a unique picture of each kid in your classroom. And so we do want to really avoid pigeonholing kids, putting kids into boxes and, and really say, what is the whole of your data? Tell me about you. And if I can do that effectively, I can learn about my kids and I can be better prepared. I might know, for example, if this kid's got nine phone numbers in two years, that that parent might be harder to get a hold of. And so maybe at open house, I want to have a conversation mm -hmm. with that parent. Um, how can I get a hold of you? What is the best way for me to communicate with you? Maybe a kid's really good at taking notes home to mom and dad and the phone number I don't need to be calling. Maybe email has been really consistent even though phone numbers have changed. So if I know that ahead of time, think about how much time, mm -hmm. how much stress, how much frustration for both you and the parent and the child, that's gonna save you over the course of the year. So um, thinking about data, as a constellation and thinking about it as information, being non-judgmental, um, how can these data points help me make better, smarter, faster decisions um, without judging kids and families along yeah. the way. That's a, that's a really great practical mm -hmm. takeaway from you know knowing if they've had a lot of phone numbers, they may be harder to get a hold of. Mm -hmm. That's obvious, mm -hmm. but until you said it, I had not even thought Same. about it. I know. <laughs> yeah. So that's that's great. Such great information yeah. there. 
That is. Okay, so you said, um, or I looked on your website, and you said it's about intentionality, doing what's best for the kids, not because we think it's what be- it's what's best, but because we know it is what is best. So I want to hear like, like how, how do we use all that information, the research and data and all that stuff we've collected, like to make it where we're not just like, you know, going on instinct in our classroom, we're actually doing something that we're like, it's proven. We know that this is what we're doing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so research use in education is a really important thing. Um, And I always tell teachers, you should take comfort in the fact that we have such a rich body of literature um, and research, because when you're facing a problem in your classroom, you are not the first teacher to face that problem Uh in practice. For generations, we've gone to the teacher down the hall and asked, you know, what did you do in this situation? And that's still a great strategy and mentorship within the profession is really important. But now we can also go online, we can go to the research literature and say, what did the teacher in the other state do with this problem? What did the teacher in another country do with this problem? Mm. And we can really understand those problems of practice in a much more deep way. Um, What this helps us to do is act faster. So we know, especially now as we are coming off of the the COVID pandemic and years of interrupted and disrupted learning, we know that we have to teach better and faster. We have to push kids in a new direction. And by going and taking the time to say, well, this problem isn't unique to me. How did other people solve it? You're going to be able to solve that problem yourself so much faster because Mm -hmm. you don't have to make up your own answer. Mm -hmm. And you can find answers that have worked with kids like yours and settings like yours and just copy and paste that into your classroom. And I want to drill down on that a bit. So when you when you say problem, what what could you give me an example of the problem that you are referring to, you know, instructionally yeah. speaking or whatever that may be? Yeah, so I've helped schools work through lots of different kinds of problems of practice. So from a school and system level, common problems of practice include things like um, varying attendance rates. Um, During COVID, I helped a lot of schools deal with problems of practice related to learning management systems and having students um, successfully log on and complete their activities. Um, At the classroom level, um, classroom management is often a problem of practice that teachers want to talk about. Um, I recently was working with a teacher who had a first grader who was not potty trained. Mm, That's a huge problem of practice, right? And she's like, I don't know what to do. And the parents didn't know what to do. And the doctor says, well, nothing's wrong with the kid, um, physically wrong with the kid. They're just not getting this this activity. And so I said, okay, well, let's look and see what have other people done for first graders who aren't potty trained. And what what we found through that process. Time out. For the, where, are yeah. you, where are you looking? Yeah, great question. Um, so for this teacher, we used a combination of Google Scholar okay. and the ERIC database. So okay. if you're not familiar with that one, that's a free yeah. database that is available to all teachers um, funded by the U.S. Department of Education. Gotcha. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. So for this teacher, what we did is we started looking and trying to figure out, okay, well, what, why might this kid who doesn't have any physical concern, right? Why might this kid Mm -hmm. still not be potty trained in first grade? We found that it was a behavioral issue, um, sort of a social behavioral issue, not obviously a physical health issue. The doctor had confirmed that. And so we created a behavior modification plan for this child. And kind of like you would use for, um, you know, special education settings, you might have behavioral modification plans or students with autism might have behavioral modification plans. We use that technique. In three months, that kid was fully potty trained, both at school and at home. Wow. Um, so that was a, a solution that that teacher was able to find in the research literature, apply in her classroom, that was able to also help the parents. Now that parent is like her best friend. And when she needs a volunteer, <laughs> that parent's the first one to come to school. They've built a really meaningful relationship. Yeah. This teacher has used research to not only change her classroom, but the life and home life of this mm. child and family. Yeah, wow. that's extraordinary. That's power. That's yeah. amazing. That's really cool. So um, what other kinds of... I was wondering, because I was looking at all of your great information online. We'll talk about website and all that stuff that everyone needs to go visit. But I was curious, and you kind of talked about it a little bit just now with classroom management, but I was curious about like how you can use research and data to inform, you know, social and emotional development with your students. Uh 
Yeah, so being able to look across um, fields through the research is a really useful tool. And so we think about social and emotional learning. You know, we've got whole bodies of research around psychology and mm -hmm. child development, and you have access to all of that too. I, I think research is one of the best forms of professional development mm -hmm. um, that a teacher can do because it really is time sensitive and targeted to your needs right now and allows you to access, you know, I don't have ready access to, uh, you know, behavioral psychologists on a daily <laughs> basis. But I do have access to behavior psychology journals that I can read and understand the current thinking on an issue. Yeah. Okay. I guess I still, a disconnect I'm feeling here is like mm -hmm. where, I don't know, I, I'm in my classroom, I have all of these issues and I want to, you know, employ the wonderful data that's been collected and researched on. And, but like, where do I start? with some of those, like a practical starting place. Yeah, so this is where um, system leaders really come into okay. play. Because we really, we know from literature that um, teachers don't have ready access to research a lot of the time. Yeah. Um, most teachers, if you're if you're starting in this point, uh, I would encourage you to um, go to my website and read some of the stuff I've written and, and videos I've created around the ERIC database. That's the, mm -hmm. the greatest best starting point. It's free, it's easy, it's accessible. Um, but for real systemic change, leaders have to think very critically about mm -hmm. how they're creating systems for research use, how they're creating protected time, one of the things I've worked with some schools on is creating um, a research use day as part of the professional learning community or PLC environment. Um, so, you know, a lot of PLCs, they run kind of cycles and rotations. So what if you just add a research use mm. point in? And so one, one, one day out of every cycle, teachers are using research. Um, including research in your decision-making processes. So leaders being able to just model and say, you know, we're gonna use this teaching technique. We want everybody to use it. Here's why, here's the research. And we're gonna provide that to you so you don't have to go find it. Those kinds of structural elements are really important and really lacking in most of our mm -hmm. uh, school systems. Another great resource for teachers who wanna start doing this is their local public library. Um, we often forget that local public libraries subscribe to research databases mm -hmm. and uh, also universities many universities offer citizen patronage. So like if I'm in Kentucky, I can go to the University of Kentucky Library with my driver's license. I can check out books and access research there as well. So there are lots of community resources. The challenge for education leaders um, and, and my big talking point is we need to bring all of that to the teachers. Mm -hmm. Teachers go out and find it. Unfortunately, we're in a space right now where teachers do have to do a little legwork. Yeah, I, I really like the idea that you know, system-wise, the system uh, brings and distills the information and then hands it to the teacher yes. to say, read these three articles, here's yeah. the reasoning behind it, this is why this <laughs> is important. And that just allows the teacher to consume that specific information, understanding why they're doing it and how to uh -huh. integrate that. Um, because, and, and this was when I was thinking about talking, you know, with you today, I was thinking about when I was in my classroom and let's say it's, it's February and I'm fatigued and I had data available, but I was just trying to mm -hmm. get through that particular, I was just trying to get through mm -hmm. Wednesday, man. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. And so if somebody that has space can, can do that for me and just say, look, this is important. Mm -hmm. And you know, th there are some challenges with that with teachers anyway, uh, you know, just rejecting whatever <laughs> whatever is yeah, handed sure. to them it happens but um i like that idea i like that idea and i'm glad that you're doing this and and, and opening this up because this you know things like eric is new you know uh, the, the yeah. internet is still very very new and incorporating all of the available information worldwide uh into what it is that you do and how you build your system is necessary but it's still in its infancy so you're yes. you're allowing people to see the benefit and how to mm. do this and all of that so that I, I love it it's just so good it's also a great way for leaders to model right so as we're making a transition into a more evidence-informed field you know leaders can really leaders have a little more flexibility in their time and schedule, right? Because they kind of set their own schedule and they, um, of course, have to respond to the ever-changing environment within a school, but they can carve out time 
in a way that a teacher can't. Mm -hmm. And so for them to say, you know, we're going to really have this big initiative and be really transparent about here's what the research says and why we're doing it. Or same thing with data. One of the things that I help schools do are is to build replicable dashboards. So if you've got some kind of reporting system, we can dump that into a dashboard and it does all the analysis automatically. On my website, I also have tools where teachers can upload data and it will analyze it and provide the report automatically. And so those kinds of system, systemic elements take the workload off and that's gonna increase buy-in and increase mm -hmm. um, research and data usage because it makes it just a little easier for teachers to access. I was gonna ask you if there was a dashboard system to where it, you just plug it in and then there it is. Because visualization of data, it, I mean, it, it's a whole industry. So yeah. if you can just take the spreadsheet and just mm -hmm. upload it and then there it is, man, what a, what a benefit mm -hmm. that is. Yeah. Yeah, and there's lots of great tools to do that. Um, I help districts build their own tools um, in sort of Google Sheets or Excel where you can really fully customize because you control it, right? right. Um, but then there's also, of course, products and whole, like you said, a whole industry around this that schools can buy into and, and subscribe to. Of course, we know resources are limited. Yeah. Um, so that's why I created the six um, auto analysis tools on my website and offer mm -hmm. those for free so oh, that wow. they just exist out there. You can upload your data and and get your reports. Um, touch of course, on not as customizable, right? When it's when mm. it's free, it's it is you get what you get. But <laughs> yeah, touch touch yeah. on those th free items because I think mm -hmm. that that would be a really good entry point, uh, a, a good conversation starter for you with schools. So what what do you sure. have there? Yeah, so um, on my website, there's a tab called the repository. And this is where I put all of my resources, some eBooks, videos, and my six tools. So these tools. Um, what the way they work is you upload your data as a CSV file and then the tools do different things. So one of them, um, I just called the distribution analysis tool. It takes one column in your data and it summarizes it for you. It calculates all the summary statistics and it creates some graphs and charts to go along with that that you can copy and paste into your PowerPoint slides, into your Word document, whatever reporting tools you're using. Um, and it's just a little drop down menu. So you can go through, let's say you've got, um, I don't know, four columns of data. So you've got maybe like fall, winter, spring, summer assessment, I don't know. And you can go through and just pick those in the drop-down menu and see those reports. Yeah. I have a pre-test, post-test tool. So you can, if you do a pre-test and a post-test with your kids, you can upload that, tell the tool which column has my pre-test data, which one has my post-test data, and it does all of that summary for mm -hmm. you, plus creating graphs. Um, I have a data desegregation tool. So if you've got a tool that has a column with, let's say, uh, a male-female indicator, and then a column with data. You can upload that, select your indicator, and it will automatically populate all of that. Um, and it's instantaneous. If you follow me on social media, I have GIFs for all of them. So it's so fast, I can make a GIF, uh, <laughs> share it on social media. Um, so they really are very user-friendly and easy. Um, they come with um, detailed technical instructions and as well as videos to help you mm -hmm. kind of see what it looks like sample data files so if you want to go on and just kind of play with a sample data you can download that and use that too um, so the, the idea there really is um, I use those tools really to teach data analysis and get people started and then step two is now let's talk about the theory let's talk about what's really happening let's talk about how you can do this on your own um, and ask more targeted questions and get more targeted answers by doing some of this analysis on your own so right. it, it really is a friendly accessible entry point yeah and I, I think that it you know just from talking to us two former teachers you, you, we had some like really fo foundational like wait a minute what do you mean you know what what, what are your <laughs> yeah. examples there because there are some really basic questions that need to be answered in order to start this journey. Uh, yeah. I like that you have templates. I like that you can mm -hmm. explain succinctly what it is that they do and, and, and why it's important. All of this is beneficial. Yes. Yeah. Sure. Thank you. Okay. So let's say a teacher has implemented all this stuff. What are some telltale signs in their classroom that these are data informed educators? Yeah, so I think um, one of the one of the big things um, in talking to teachers when when they're using research and data, they can tell you why they're doing everything that they're doing. Mm. So why is That's... is Johnny doing this activity, or why is Johnny doing this activity and Sarah's doing a different activity? Uh -huh. um, and sometimes uh, we see that in classrooms because teachers give um, choice, which is a great. 
uh, a great element, but when a teacher is using evidence and research and data to determine what they're doing, they'll be able to say, well, Johnny is really mm -hmm. missing this standard, and this activity is a little more tailored to this standard, whereas Sarah is really missing this standard over here. Yeah. Or uh, Johnny needed some reteaching, so he's redoing um, a little uh, miniature version of yesterday's lesson, and Sarah's a little advanced, so she's working ahead to tomorrow or doing some enrichment. And so they can really start to see those things. You also really see it a lot in behavior management and classroom mm. management yeah. and being able to say, you know, um, little, we all know, teachers know little things. Um, here's the example from my personal experience that really started me on this evidence path. Um, I was a music teacher funneling through 300 kids a day and um, pencils and pencil sharpeners are like the bang <laughs> of every teacher, right? But especially when kids are not bringing their own pencils yes. and you're funneling them through. I mean, I was spending an hour every day just sharpening pencils and that was how I was running, running up my day. So I went and I said, well, what are some advantages to other options? And I found research that talked about um, ink pen use in elementary. Mm -hmm. and how an ink pen, if you can teach kids certain strategies, you can actually learn more. So when my kids wrote music, we wrote in pen, and I taught them special editing symbols. So what I could see now mm -hmm. is the mistake they were making and the self-correction they were making and the thought process. So I threw all my pencils away, and we used cheap, you know, 10 for 99 cent uh -huh. ink pens. Um, and that completely changed the way that I taught um taught music writing and from a evidence standpoint someone could come into my classroom and say why are your kids using pins because that's not normal it's not <laughs> common for second graders to use yeah. pins um, and I could say well here's why we're using pins because I found this study and this is what it's doing for me so teachers who are evidence informed mm -hmm. can really go very deep into the why mm -hmm. behind every little thing in their classroom yeah that, wow. that's good let, let me ask you this this is more philosophical than statistics <laughs> okay um, you know, I've talked to teachers about is teaching more art or science mm. and it depends on who you're talking to. And I, I think yeah. that what it really comes down to is, you know, the, the personality that, that is bent toward what you're talking about, statistics, data, and things like that. They, they feel comfortable on a path that is, is proven out with data. There are other people like me, uh, that need to feel it they see they see what uh, their their kids are receiving, what they're not, what the day is like, the mood, and all of this, and they make modifications, and that feels good because you're you're in the flow of it, right? Mm -hmm. So, what what are your thoughts on that? Because I was not necessarily a data driven teacher, and and may, maybe I was in some sense, but I wanted to see what was working in the moment, mm -hmm. and so your your thoughts blow, blow up my idea because i know you i know you can't do that yeah so um as a as a music teacher i would say sometimes art is science mm -hmm. um and we learn that there are rules and structures that guide some of the artistic decisions that we make one of the fascinating things in the body of literature and there's a large body of research literature about how teachers use and engage in research um, one of the fascinating things is that often teachers are accidentally evidence-informed. Yes. They kind of stumble upon evidence-based practice because teaching is like doing a hundred little science experiments all day, every day. Mm -hmm. And so they sort of, um, th those master teachers, what, what we find is I can find what you're doing in the literature and you came upon it on your own. So my argument to that is, you know, we've got these great teachers with 15 and 20 years experience doing amazing things. What if we can capture that and through the literature, give it to that first, second, third year teacher mm -hmm. and get them to where that 20 year teacher is without 20 years of experimentation? Right. To me, that's the power yeah. of this transition to evidence informed is is seeing that, you know, those teachers, they're doing evidence informed activities. Let me show you what they are earlier in your profession and we can get you there so much faster. And then what amazing things are you going to be doing in 20 years? Yeah. Wow. Yeah. I like it. That is, I know that like in just, I think I relate more to Rick and kind of the, you know, the feeling of it all. That's kind of how I <laughs> yeah. operated really. Yeah. Um, but there were times like in those sweet spots, you know, my, 
sweet spot of teaching was fifth grade science and social studies. And we had an awesome social studies curriculum and they had done a lot of the work for me, like the mm -hmm. research base. And I, I was more informed and in not only what I was teaching, but like why I'm teaching it and how I'm teaching it. Yeah. And it was so powerful to be able to, you know, conduct lessons like that and just see where the kids can go. And it, I don't know, it gave me so much, you know, what skill and how to, you know, question and push further and then how to redirect if, or, you know, to re learn some things, re go over some re go over, yeah. you know what I mean? <laughs> um, <laughs> but it's just like those sweet spots are when I felt like the most successful as a teacher when I was doing that. And it makes me look back and think like, I, you know, I wish I would have been incorporating this, but I just didn't know. I didn't know what right. I didn't know, but I don't know. It just feels good. It feels good teaching when you know why and what you're doing. Yeah. But just having yeah, a good foundation underneath you. Yes. Yeah. And I, I think here's the flip side to that. It's we have teachers having those amazing feel good moments uh -huh. every day and no one knows about yes, it. Yes, exactly. And so yes. one of the things that I am doing more work on now and kind of transitioning to is really capturing those stories. Mm. Because how do we take those aha, those amazing innovations that no one knows about and introduce them into the research literature so that more and more teachers can find those ahas. Mm -hmm. um, you know, we, we talk about that structurally in this concept of action research that's kind of how it's taught but it really is that research in the moment and how do we empower teachers to then write about what they did um, or make a video or find a way to share that innovation share their own mm. research and their own data that they're doing um, and inspire then future researchers you know those full-time university researchers to pick yeah. up your amazing innovation and experiment with things like scale experiment with taking your innovation and putting it into a different into a different context you were in social studies maybe i can do that in a math classroom let's try that but if no one knows then, then no one knows, yeah. right? And the innovation stays in your classroom and it can't grow. Um, so that's another really powerful thing for those teachers who are a little more intuitive. How can you share your successes more broadly? How can we scale those? How can we let more teachers know about them? That's yeah. really one of the foundational things of what we're doing with Relate and Educate is that yeah. each teacher has an extraordinary story. They have extraordinary wisdom. And when we began to interview teachers, we realized that one, the, the wisdom that they would just casually drop in a conversation was staggering. <laughs> wow. Yes. But at the same time, they would just discount they'd, all, all the time. I, I, just, I, I was worried. I don't, I don't have anything to say. I don't, I don't have anything of value. And it was shocking how you know, the, the value that they possess could not reach outside of themselves mm -hmm. because they devalued it at the mm -hmm. outset. And so... Yeah. Um, allowing a platform to just get them engaged in conversation to, to let everybody hear it. Like, yeah, these are extraordinary people. So I, I love that you can, you know, pinpoint and see best practice. Mm -hmm. Let's find a way to get that out. Um, mm -hmm. And, and just a side note, I see teachers on social media, usually they're typically younger, but they are really advanced in mm -hmm. the technology of getting their messaging mm -hmm. out of who they are yeah. and what they do and things like that. But the vast majority, the 99% of really seasoned teachers just don't have time or they're not interested in self-promotion or, or they just don't really get, you know, the whole uh, infrastructure of getting their video online mm -hmm. is just <laughs> too much. So, you know, finding that, finding the way, finding the way to get their uh, wisdom out to the general public of teachers, I think is really important. Yeah. And I think sometimes that self-promotion can feel a little icky. Oh, teachers, goodness. Yes. Especially <laughs> if you're, you know, that really motivated, um, you know, teaching is part of your soul, right? It mm -hmm. can feel incongruous, but really if we're going to push the profession and grow the profession, we have to share our amazing yes. experiences yeah. uh, and, and help lift up other teachers. Absolutely. The, the workaround to that is tell me how you have, like you, you mentioned Johnny, you mentioned yeah. that. How did you know to do that? How did you, how did you help Johnny in that way? And then they'll just tell you the whole story because mm -hmm. now yeah. it's about Johnny. It's not about them. Uh, and they will just, um, let you have it. And it's just yeah. beautiful, mm -hmm. you know, cause you also get elements of their heart. There is yes. the practical, but it's also the spiritual that it is mixed in there mm -hmm. as well as to why mm -hmm. they care, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I love Man. it.
Me too. <laughs> <laughs> Me too. All right. Well, we're kind of getting low on time, but I want to talk about your work as a policymaker. Tell me what all sure. you've been doing with that. Yeah. So, um, Making the transition from classroom to nonprofit to policy was uh -huh. a, a big shift for me, um, but it's a position and a role that I really love because um, I went from, I like to say I went from the advocate holding the megaphone to the policy guy holding the ink pen um, uh. and the ability to be able to really go in and say, is this really what's best for kids um, is, is a a real honor that I, that I feel and a, a calling that I feel very, very heavily. The, big part of my work, um, perhaps unsurprisingly, is uh, how do we use research literature to make sure that we're making the best policy for kids? Mm -hmm. Because we know through the history of policy that policymakers have made um, decisions that have created systemic barriers and issues, sometimes on purpose and sometimes by accident and sometimes by societal happenstance, right? How do we learn from those lessons? How do we see what's going on and craft a, a new policy or a new take on this policy that increases equity and access for all mm -hmm. children, that promotes um, teacher autonomy and flexibility and lets them do the amazing things that they, that they can and want to do? How do we empower leaders to build systems that um, are flexible and nimble and I think we're in a really exciting time right now in education policy because we've just been forced to be flexible and nimble and autonomous True. in a way mm -hmm. that we've never had before. <laughs> so now in policy discussions, a big part of that is how do we enshrine this? How do we make this the new normal? I kind of hate that that term, but mm -hmm. it is what it is. How do we make that, how do we enshrine that in policy so that leaders and teachers can be autonomous, can be innovative and creative? And how do we support them um, through through our policies to make sure that they're doing what we know is best, um, not what we think is best or what society is telling us in the moment uh, is what we should be doing. Because that's really, that's where you get policy problems yeah. um, is when you're, you're responding to kind of the loudest voice in the room as opposed to the truth and the facts and the mm. knowledge. Yeah, yeah. That's well, great. speaking to what you just mentioned, you know, the, the pandemic, what it allowed for is just to us to see extraordinary efforts that teachers go through and how nimble they are like yeah. on Friday they're in class on Monday they're virtual and they did it you know yeah. mm -hmm. just like that and they managed it um, and but at the same time you know that, that the last couple of years has been very difficult and they have weighed heavy on on the professional and teachers and things like that and so being able to give freedom to teachers without adding additional burden. Like that's the <laughs> trick. And I, I don't envy your, <laughs> I don't envy, envy that task because it is extraordinarily hard to thread that needle. Um, <laughs> and, and people at the district level of schools and even the building level are trying to do that as well. And it's just really, really hard. Um, you know, we get access to what, what's going on in the classroom across the country. There's some commonalities, but there's also some very unique things that are happening in particular areas. And um, it's just, it's hard to, with a broad stroke, say that this is the best thing to do, you know, because yeah. there are so, such variants uh, throughout the system. So anyway, but keep up the good work. Oh I don't want to discourage. I'm just saying, man, what a task mm -hmm. you have is, is it, it's just so difficult. Yeah, I think you're right. And I think um, as we think through how things like virtual schooling, that wasn't new. We had some virtual schooling before, but now we know so much more about it, right? right? So how do we, from a policy perspective, take all the stuff we learned about virtual schooling, how do we put up guardrails mm -hmm. um, to protect kids who maybe aren't going to thrive in that environment? Mm -hmm. How do we create school virtual schooling options that are flexible and nimble and iterative? Um, those are the conversations that I think across the nation policymakers are really engaging in. And, and really taking the opportunity to learn from the experience right. that we've just had. How can we take the horrible thing that was COVID-19 and find some, mm -hmm. some beauty in it and find some opportunity for growth? Yeah, wow. absolutely. I'm so glad you're out there doing what you're doing. Yes. Truly. <laughs> this is Thank you. so good. Okay, so let's talk about your book. Tell us what it's called. Tell us a little bit about it. And how people can get yeah. it. Yes, thank you. <laughs> yeah, so um, my book is called Exploratory Data Analysis in the Classroom. Mm -hmm. And it is the book that I needed when I was trying to figure out how to use data in my classroom. Good. It is a step-by-step -step 
um, book on how to access data and analyze that data using very friendly, um, low-hanging fruit kind of math mm. and statistics. So I like to say that it's a theory light book. Um, it includes, as I said earlier, a vignette that runs through the whole thing. So you can follow a middle school social studies teacher as she learns how to use data and explores and learns about her students. Every chapter is a new skill, so you can break it up and even do it week by week if that's how you wanted, like in a book study, or, you know, this week we're all going to learn chapter one and we're going to master that skill, um, or you can kind of do it on your own. It's also supported online with um, downloadable resources and videos. So as I teach those spreadsheet skills, you can read about them. If you're a more visual person, you can watch a video on my website about how to do that skill. Um, and so that I think makes it very um, useful and friendly. You can order it from my website, um, www.matthewbcourtney.com. It's also available on Amazon. Okay. Awesome. Your website is a good website. I've clicked, no, but you have so much, just like you said before, so much free information and wonderful things out there for people. So go to his website at MatthewBCourtney.com. Truly, it's good stuff. I was, there's lots of stuff too. I, was, I loved it. <laughs> and more stuff, more stuff all the time. I, so good. Okay. And then I saw that you have a blog, hashtag beyond the mean. Tell us about that. Yeah, so my blog, hashtag beyond the mean, um, is all about helping educators learn little nuggets of data analysis and research use. So okay. um, I publish a new post every week. It's on those topics. Um, but the whole idea is most educators look at the mean or the average, right? And we say, well, average performance was blah, blah, blah. And that's where we stop. Mm -hmm. So how do we go beyond the mean? How do we go beyond that? How do we make better, more critical decisions about research and data use? New post every week. Um, so those come out on Sundays. Cool. And then tell us about social media. Where can people find you on there? Yeah, so I'm active on Twitter and on LinkedIn. Um, and it's mbcourtneyedd. That's my okay. that's my tag on both of those platforms. Gotcha. Awesome. Okay, well, is there anything that we haven't gotten to that you would like to share real quick with our audience? I don't think so. I've okay. really enjoyed talking with you today. We've enjoyed talking Absolutely. to you too. We have two more questions that do not have <laughs> okay. to be education related. It's just kind of a okay. fun thing. Okay. <laughs> well, actually, the first one is totally education related. <laughs> Sorry, I got a little ahead of myself. Um, okay. If you had one minute to go back in time to talk to young Matthew before he stepped into his first elementary music classroom, if you have one minute to just like share all of your 13 years, the most important things that you wanted to tell him, what would you tell him? Um, I would tell him to chill out. <laughs> <laughs> that teaching is supposed to be fun. Uh, Learning is supposed to be fun. And yeah, there's a lot of stuff, uh -huh. but the stuff's just going to be there and the stuff will uh -huh. take care of itself. Yeah. That's good. Yep. That's good. Okay. And this one really doesn't have to be education related. <laughs> yeah. All okay. right. All of us, I want all three of us to say something we're consuming in real life um, that you're, you know, want to recommend to people. I'll start, and it can be anything. It could be TV, movie, podcast, food, anything you want it to be. Um, I'm going to start with, I'm going to recommend if you live in Oklahoma, we'll shoot anywhere. I'm loving lakes this year. The Oklahoma lakes are beautiful. I've been going to, I like several different lakes. By the way, it was weekend. 107 here yesterday. Oh, yeah. It's hot as <laughs> yeah. it can be. But I'm just, I don't know. I've loved being outside and just enjoying the heck out of my beautiful Oklahoma scenery. So that's what I'm recommending. What about you, Matthew? Let's see. I'm going to recommend next time you're in Kentucky, uh -huh. you need to find a good hometown restaurant and eat a Kentucky hot brown. What is uh, that? Delicious open face sandwich um, with turkey, ham, bacon, tomato, and smothered in delicious cheese sauce. Okay. It is the signature dish of Kentucky and I will always recommend it. Love it. I've never heard of that. I want to go to Kentucky. I have not either. Have you been to Kentucky? I haven't. No, I've not been to Kentucky. Well, maybe I have, you know, when I was a kid going, to, we, we went out to the, the East Coast, but maybe. Um, but I've never heard of that yes. before, that, that item of oh, food. Well, Good sandwich. I would have put it on my list. <laughs> that is, me too. <laughs> All right, Rick, what about you? Oh, I, I'll go with food as well. I, I, I'm having some, some friends over tomorrow night. And there is a pizza that I, I pulled out of a book called Elements of Pizza. Mm -hmm. And if you want to learn how to make pizza, that's the book to go to. It's, uh, it's amazing. But uh, the, the, the pizza is 
It's raclette cheese, which is kind of, you know, more of a stinky mm -hmm. type cheese. Yeah. Uh, it's leeks that have been, uh, you know, reduced in, you know, just a, a beer. And then uh, crumbled potatoes. Oh. And I've had it before. Yeah. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make it for, for them uh, tomorrow. But shocking how good it is. Wow. It's completely like the other end of the field of pizza, you know, like pepperoni and all that stuff. It's on the other yeah. end of the field. But yeah, that's that's one of my favorites. It ha it kind of has elements of Thanksgiving. Oh. Like, yeah, which is not what you think of when you think of pizza. But anyway, that's yeah. that's Sounds something amazing. I'm looking forward to tomorrow. What book was that that you got it from? Elements of Pizza. Elements and of it's pizza. the the guy that wrote it I th I, I'm probably going to get this wrong, but he's one of the founders of something like, say, Google. You know, it was a, it was a tech industry, mm -hmm. and of course he made billions. And then he just left, and he went out to the West Coast. I think it was Seattle, um, the Northwest, and he started a bakery, and mm -hmm. then he started a pizza place. And he's all about systems. Like <laughs> you use five grams of salt, you use 116 grams of water, like, Love and it. he just dialed it in and, and it was really helpful in learning how to make pizza. So again, mm. if you, if you ever want to learn how to make really good pizza, <laughs> that's the book. That's great. And a real world example of evidence use. Exactly. Boom. Exactly. Boom. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. I love it. Well, Dr. Matthew Courtney, thank you so much for joining us on yes. our podcast. This was fun. I'm glad we got to meet yeah. you. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me. I had a great time. Yes. You're such a good resource. We will definitely be pointing our teachers your direction. Thank you. Look him up, y'all. Yes. All right. Thank you. Visit our website at relatethaneducate.com. If you'd like us to come to your school, we would love to. So go to our website, click on our speaking page, and see what all we talk about. And know that we can customize our messaging based on what your preferences are or needs that your school has. So get in touch with us. We'd love to meet your teachers. And also, teachers, you have a story worthy of sharing. So reach out to us on our website or email us at relatethaneducate at gmail.com. We would love to get to meet you, get to talk to you, just mainly just get to hear what you have to say because you're so important to us. So like and follow us at Instagram and Facebook at Relate Then Educate and then on Twitter at Relate Then E-D-U-C and the number one. And then on whatever you're listening to this podcast, please, please, please like us, follow us and leave a review. Finally, teachers, you are worthy. You are valuable and you are loved.